Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, this is Howard Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. And just as a quick disclaimer, I should mention that the opinions that we discuss today are those of the World Business Academy and not those of Morgan Stanley. Excuse me, if you'd like to contact us at any time, you can go to our website at www.worldbusiness.org. And if you'd like to send an email with a question or a comment or any other information, it's info at worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics along with our lightning round. Um, we already have several questions in the queue we've received by email. Uh, we'll be bringing those up during the course of today's conversation. And uh, today, Ronaldo and I will delve deeply into the recent fumblings of the Washington, D.C. political establishment and the expected ramifications for the national and global economies. We'll also be talking with Jerry B. Brown, a World Business Academy fellow, author, and a founding professor at Florida International University. Dr. Brown teaches courses on anthropology, energy policy, social movements, and the impact of technology. He will discuss the Academy Safe Energy Project, an effort to create sensible and safe energy solutions to nuclear energy that can replace dangerous nuclear power plants in California. As an example, Germany has terminated its entire nuclear industry. The San Onofre nuclear power plant in California has been offline for almost a year because it's unsafe to operate. The Academy, with its two decades of experience with nuclear energy, examines the viability of nuclear and what the replacement strategies for it could be. Ronaldo and I will also be doing our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, with particular emphasis today on gold and the S&P 500 numbers. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members and our listeners with concrete, actual ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society uh, and also to help people with their own investment concepts. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails? Ronaldo. Thank you, Howard, and, and, and welcome, everyone, to uh, this is our, uh, our March uh, telephone call, 2013. And uh, for those of you who follow the show regularly, uh, you know last quarter of last year we were predicting a, a, a little bit better than 3% uh, GDP growth on an annualized basis um, if they did not uh, do the sequester and that it would lose about a one to one and a half points of growth if they did. Um, that appears to us to still be the correct assessment. Um, the sequester hasn't hurt yet. It will begin to hurt soon, although I've got some very good news on the employment front. Besides the number everybody was looking at, um, they, when, they, when they released the, the numbers on employment yesterday, uh, they, we had a, the best number we've had uh, since, I guess, at least four or five years now, uh, 230,000 jobs. Uh, were created last month, which is a significant amount of momentum, and that's exactly what I was looking at and expecting if there were no sequester. So that number was already going to happen before the sequester. But the other part of that number, which most people probably did not notice and is even more important, is that the average work week has inched back up to 34.5 hours. It was 34.4 in January. 
and it was only 33.8 in 2009. In fact, at the height of the, uh, the boom that preceded the economy's explosion, so around 2006, 2007, it was actually 34.7 hours. So we're right back up to almost the height. Now, why is that important to all of you listening? Because when the work week gets that long, it requires employers to have to hire more. In other words, you can't keep doing the same amount of business or an increasing amount of business with the same number of employees. So what it tells me is that the employment number will probably be pretty good again next month until the sequester starts to bite, which is now starting to do. So you've started hearing your first notices of layoffs in uh, at, at the level of firemen, teachers, and that sort of thing. You've heard of um, the, the White House is closed for guests from now on because the Secret Service can't control the crowds at the White House and protect the president uh, and the executives who work there. So uh, the first uh, there, there, there are terminations now occurring uh, in many different sectors, and particularly in the military where a huge number of people, certainly more than 500,000, are going to be terminated in the civilian workforce, not to mention all the programs that are being curtailed. Now, whether you think military spending is a good thing or, mal- or not isn't really the issue. Um, almost everybody thinks cops on the beat and school teachers and classrooms is a good thing. And most people would think that being able to visit the White House is a good thing. It's a pity we can't afford it since we're not a financially destitute country. So how did we get to this position and what's the significance? Well, those good numbers I just told you about the employment will not continue indefinitely as the sequester starts to bite. In fact, we did the first cut at sequester, as you know, which is 85, roughly, uh, billion. If the second chunk goes into effect by 2014, it will have a further uh, difficult effect. And in fact, I'm going to come back and talk about the stock market later because one of the questions Howard asked me just before the show is, do we think the stock market's too high, price just right, or is it ready for a fall, as some people think? So I'm going to come back to all that. But before I do, what we really have to talk about first and foremost is Despite the Republican obstructionism, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the lightning round, they have done everything they can, and it's just plain foolish to slow the economy down. Initially, their goal to slow the economy was the hopes that they could keep Obama from getting reelected. That was their first hope. Now, I think it's extraordinarily craven and, frankly, extraordinarily foolish and short-sighted for the Republican Party to want to slow the economy down. Clearly, that's been their policy for at least four years. Unfortunately, it continues to be their policy. And the obstructionism we're seeing in Washington, such as that something is stupid as a sequester, which was designed to be so dumb that neither party would want to implement it, that it got implemented, is, I think, beyond beyond ridiculous. In fact, I was a big proponent of a bill that, I forget which congressman wrote it, it was a one-sense bill that said the sequester is hereby repealed, which I think would have gotten a majority of the House and the Senate had it been put forward. The president did not put it forward. I do not know why. What I think is really critical, though, is the sequester is a very bad meat hammer, sledgehammer kind of meat cleaver, sledgehammer device, which does not help the economy. It hurts it. And in fact, I predict in hindsight, five years from today, people will look back and say, wow, not only was that dumb to do that to us, but the cost of that in economic growth increased the fiscal deficit, not reduced it, increases the deficit. Now, that's how foolish this is. Why is that important? Because as dumb as the Republicans are being, and remember, you're now talking about a minority party. You're talking about um, a party that that operates um, basically at not at most a third of the U.S. voters they represent, and of those, only half are the really crazy Tea Party people who are driving the entire Republican Party. You know, and this reminds me 
of a great quote uh, I want to share with you. Um, it, it, it is a um, listen to this quote, and then I'm going to tell you who it's by. If the laws are to be uh, hammered, uh, uh, bandied up with imp- 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 imperceptible uh, s- 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 slowdowns and and other um, ways that a small group can dictate to the majority, there is an endpoint we will see to what was the great Republican experiment. That was George Washington. In other words, when you allow a small group of people to take control of the government, a small minority, at the and cost of the majority, what you've done is destroyed the basic principle of Republican form of government, of which the United States is the leading proponent in the world. So I have to say something today that really doesn't feel good, but I've got to say that sometimes we're asked if we really are independent and neutral on the show, and we really are. And we've said many times, you know, when the Democrats do something dumb, we'll say so, and when the Republicans do something, say we'll, we'll say so. I've scrupulously been independent for more than a decade and a half. I want to call on President Obama and tell him, as I've done once before, Mr. President, you are not doing your job. The part that the Republicans are right about is that you are the president. It is not your job to seek a grand bargain. It is not your job to make the Republicans happy. It is not your job to be a hail fellow well met. It is not your job to try to be loved by all. It is your job to run the country. You are the chief executive officer of the United States of America. As such, you can't blame middle management, which at most is one-third of the, of the country, from blocking you from serving the other 70% of us. It is your responsibility, it is your duty under the Constitution, and I call upon you to start meeting that duty, Mr. President. And that means taking whatever steps you need, and I can list a few if you like, that you could take without congressional support to begin putting this Tea Party craziness in the box it belongs in and bury it in the dustbin of history. You must do that. So, Ronaldo, let me sure. interrupt for a second and say, can you give us some examples of some of the kinds of things the president can actually do to implement policy in a significant way that are not dependent upon the whims of a, of a dysfunctional Congress so that our, our audience understands what can and can't be done? First of all, let's take the biggest example. When you unpack this silly grand bargain he's trying for, and you strip it down into individual things that people can understand, so there's not all this obfuscation and confusion, with, with, which people, they glaze over when they, when they hear these conversations. And you say, well, we've got this one position. We in the Democratic majority, we believe that violence against women is wrong, particularly Native American women on Indian reservations. And we're going to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. And the Republicans, the Tea Party, said, no, you're not. We're going to stop you. We're going to block that like we block everything else, because we're the party of no. And they proceed to have a fight on that one issue. The women and men of America flooded the congressional home districts of those congressmen, and that bill went through to the surprise of – I wasn't surprised, but it was sure as heck surprised in the Republicans. I think it even got the Democrats by surprise. So that was a bill that the Republicans stuck their, 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 their pole on the ground, and they said, we will not let this pass, and they had to. And I would suggest to you, Howard, if the president would go one bill at a time, because, see, the grand bargain is a trap. He's, the president's allowing the Republicans to define the conversation. When they got to define the conversation, they will make him look bad no matter what. And it confuses people. And then people lose confidence in government because they say, well, he is the president. Why isn't he leading us? And I say the same thing. Mr. President, you are not leading. 
You are acting like the 51st senator, and that is not your job. And by the way, while we're on the subject of the Senate, I think you've got to take Harry Reid to the woodshed and ask him why when the vast majority of your political base, Mr. President, and certainly the vast majority of Democrats, told you and him in cloud-clear language by petition after petition, get rid of that filibuster rule. I want to, I want to applaud Rand Paul on the show today. Rand Paul did what the filibuster is supposed to do. If you don't like something, stand up there and talk about it for 13 hours until you fall over. You have to go to the bathroom, as he did in his case. In that situation, that, that, that Republican doing that, Rand Paul, actually exemplified what it was we told Harry, Harry Reid we wanted and he didn't get for us. That, that's, that's what I'm talking about. We're not, the, the president is not even running his own party, let alone running the country. And Mr. President, if I were you, I would say to Mr. Cantor, for example, uh, Eric, your district is real close to where I live. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to pass the following budget, which is fair and is what the Americans voted on. The Ryan budget is what was put up last year, was rejected. It is so silly, and, and it's also full of lies and distortions. So I'm going to put up my budget again, Mr. Cantor, and you're going to support it, because if you don't, I'm going to go to your district. If I have to one weekend a month until 2014 and tell the people of your district exactly what you're doing to hurt them, and I can assure you, Mr. Cantor, they will not reelect you. And I can do the same thing to John Boehner, and I can do the same thing to Paul Ryan. And you know what? He should do it to all three of them. And i got to tell you, as soon as he gets tough, those three guys will cave like the paper tigers that they are. So those are two things I've already mentioned. I'll give you a third one and I'm done. He has the power of the administrative agencies. Do you know how much he could change and how quickly if he really got into the Environmental Protection Agency and started issuing specific instructions, including, by the way, we should dramatically increase the fines being assessed for environmental pollution, which would generate positive cash flow so that the EPA would not have to cut a single person. They would more than make up the 8% they lost on the sequester. And I would do the same thing at the SEC. I'd do the same thing at the FDA. And every single governmental agency that he cares about could then create more wealth than it's actually being cost. Now, when it gets to tougher issues like health care, which I think there's no question we're not going to unpack despite Ryan's wildest dream, when it gets to tougher questions like Head Start, I believe he can put a Head Start rule in front of the Congress as a single bill, not part of some crazy grand bargain, and it will pass because it makes so much sense. It's so economically viable for the country. He could do the same thing with teachers. He could do the same thing with police. He could do the same thing with fire. Now, I am urging you, Mr. President, and I'm going, to, I'm going to end with this comment. If you were the president of a business, if you were the CEO of a business, and you told your board the reason you were failing was because a bunch of middle managers wouldn't cooperate, Mr. President, the board would fire you, and they're supposed to. That's their job. So don't tell us, despite all this obstructionism, which we know about, don't tell us that's why you can't run the country. You were, ru- you were elected to run the country. We trusted you to become our chief executive. We want you now to start acting like it. And, Mr. President, we're going to judge you on what you get done, not by how nice you are and how many times you go to Capitol Hill. You're on the third time there today. We're not going to judge you by how pleasant you are and how many people like you. We're not going to judge you on how pleasant your smile. We're going to judge you on what you get done, Mr. President, because you're the chief executive officer, not the chief cheerleader. And I urge you to start taking control of the conversation from the Republicans, and you will be able to get everything you want and then some. I urge you to do it because the country desperately needs it. And if you don't, the economy is going to continue to soften in the next three, four months, and will get far worse in 2014 with a second bite of the sequester. Ronaldo, before we introduce Jerry, let me just ask you one last question on this. 
it's been very clear, I think, to the public at large that no matter what Obama has tried to do, the Republican in Cong- Republicans in Congress have acted in an obstructionist fashion, and they continue. Ryan's budget last week is an indication they're in no mood to compromise. They're simply going to play no. When do you think Obama is going to realize that there is no compromising with another side that's unwilling to compromise? Well, well, and when is he going to take that action that you well, so passionately call for, if look, ever? Howard. It, nobody doubts, including the right wing, that, that Barack Obama is a very bright man. So nothing we are saying has to be new information to him. I, I believe he's very, very smart. I think it's his lack of will. In other words, he's choosing not to do what he has to do because he's choosing instead to try and keep building consensus and develop some sort of a grand bargain, which is, I believe, a dead end. And I believe that by being trapped into that dead end, not only is he being hurt, the country's being hurt. I mean, so, I heard the other day an article mentioning that he was considering cuts to the entitlement programs of Medicare and Social Security. Which I think is insane. Before he because, even sat down with the Republicans to discuss anything. Yeah. I mean, I wish he would sit down with Paul Krugman once a week for about an hour and he could fix every single problem he's got in front of him, frankly. But, 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 and, and for whatever reason, he's not listening to Krugman because Krugman's pointed out correctly that there is no financial deficit in the Social Security program for at least 20 years, and even that could be cured by, uh, by several different things we can do which don't require a significant adjustment to entitlements. The one adjustment to an entitlement that I would certainly agree to would be some sort of means testing. I think that's a valuable uh, possible way to balance it because for some people an extra $100 a month on a Social Security or 200 bucks a month is not going to change their lifestyle if they're multimillionaires. And, and that change alone could be a significant extender. You could get another 10, 15 years uh, of life for the Social Security system just by doing that. So it could be 30, 40 years before you have to address this again. And, and at that point, the age wave is over, right? Because remember, I'm a baby boomer. We only got at most 20 years left. So if I can get to 30 years of the Social Security system, I'm on the downside slope of having more people paying and less people requiring the care. Exactly. I think there's – give you one more example. And this is – he's got to take a bill, a single bill, not a comprehensive And he goes to Congress and says, you know what? We're the only developed nation in the world that pays 40% more for prescription drugs made in America that are sold to every other country in the world, and we pay a 40% premium because the Congress made a law to artificially keep profits of drug companies high at the expense of the American people. So here's what I want to do. I want a bill that says we get to negotiate for drugs at the same price that Britain pays, Germany pays, France pays, Poland pays, Spain pays, etc., and if they do that, guess what, Howard? He will save more than the entire sequester in the medical, Medicare bill. So he will get all the money back he lost and a profit just by that one bill. Now, if you take that bill to the Congress, who in their right mind is a congressman, even a Tea Party Republican, is going to want to go down fighting for paying 40% more for drugs at a time when the American public is very acutely aware that they're overpaying for drugs? Who's going to support a congressman who says, no, folks, I like the drug companies more than I like you, so they're, you're going to pay 40% more because they give money to my campaign. i got to tell you, such a congressman will not be reelected in 2014. So, so my point is, there's all sorts of these things he can do, but that's a form of executive leadership that this president does not seem willing to take. Uh, the last point I will make to your question, Howard, is this. How long before he realizes it? I don't know. But I can say this. I know I'm extremely disappointed. I know many of his followers are getting disappointed. 
I predict that his ability to raise money from his followers is going to start to be reduced. I predict that his social media network is going to start to fail him if he does not measure up to the task which we have entrusted him with. Mr. President, we only have one president at a time, and it's you. The Republicans are right about that. Start leading, and I'll give you two or three examples of how it would look if you did. It would look like a guy named Harry Truman who said the buck stops here. He didn't blame the Congress. He said it's me. I'll give you the example of Harry, uh, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who knew ahead of time that several things that he created as laws and, and initiatives he took would probably get struck down by the Supreme Court. But he knew correctly by the time they did it, the, de- the Depression would be over. So he did it anyway. God bless him for it, and that's why we revere him to this day. I'll give you a third example. Your favorite all-time president, Mr. President, Abraham Lincoln, was known, as you very well known, to play power politics and did. If he hadn't, the union would come apart. If you don't start playing like an executive, Mr. President, the union will suffer irreparably, as it's currently doing, even as we speak, because the economy has been artificially depressed for the last four years. Well, on that note, Ronaldo, I'm going to turn this back over. We're going to open up Jerry's mic. And in this particular case, because you and Jerry have been friends for so long, I'm going to allow you to do the, the formal introduction. And with that, let's have Jerry on air. Welcome, Jerry. Good to be here, Ronaldo. Hey, Welcome thanks for again. joining us. So let me just briefly introduce Jerry. Um, and and um, uh, for those of you who don't know Jerry, he, is, he isn't the Jerry Brown who is governor of our state. He's Professor Jerry Brown from the state of Florida. Uh, Jerry has been a, a tenured uh, professor for many years at Florida, state, Florida National University, FIU. He also has been a member of the World Business Academy since 1990. Uh, he and I met several years before that, actually, when he came out to uh, work with an organization that I was involved in as he got going with it called BENS, the Business Executives for National Security, where he was instrumental in helping to organize the California chapter. He um, he had be previously been involved uh, as a professor, and a story he might want to tell you himself, with um, the discovery of Three Mile Island basically happening just as he was returning to the U.S. after a sabbatical and the huge impact that that event had on his life. But before he goes to that, and, and as I say, Jerry's a personal friend. Uh, we've written two books together. We wrote a college textbook together called Profiles of Power back in 1997, which was uh, produced by a division of the college textbook division of Simon & Schuster. He was also co-author with me on Freedom from Mideast Oil seven years ago. Uh, he's an energy expert uh, as well as a brilliant cultural anthropologist. The two of those are an interesting amalgam. He'll tell you how he got there. But I want to just say one last thing, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jerry. One of the things I was impressed with Jerry when I first met him and continue to be impressed to this day with, I was one of the people in the street who supported Cesar Chavez in the great boycott. And I knew that Jerry lived at Cesar's elbow for many, many years, literally in the the fields of Delano, uh, as a man committed, before he got his Ph.D., to making a difference with his life and supporting one of the great Americans, Cesar Chavez. In the process of doing that, he played an extraordinarily instrumental role, and he's quite humble about it, but books that have since come out, which if people want I can give you references to later, have remarked on the extraordinarily important role that Jerry Brown played in guiding and developing and the success that Cesar Chavez created called The Great Boycott, which began basically agricultural unions in America. So, Jerry, I want to thank you on behalf of the people of America for all the things you've done, for all that you've done with us in the world of energy, and ask you... How does a cultural anthropologist get into nuclear physics? 
Well, that's a great question, but uh, while we're having this little mutual admiration society, uh, I want to say, having been your friend for 30 years, that uh, if more of the CEOs and the political leadership of the country thought the way that you and the uh, fellows of the World Business Academy did, America would be in a lot better shape. And I want to thank you for being such an inspiring co-author. Uh, basically, as an anthropologist, I came out to uh, California to study the great movement, uh, Cesar Chavez's great boycott and the farmworks movement, and ask, what is this guy doing right? Why is this social movement succeeding after everyone from the AFL-CIO, the Communist Party in the 30s, the, even the Catholic Church tried to organize farm workers. And what I found out was that in addition to being a sainted uh, leader, which Caesar definitely was an apostle of nonviolence and a, a disciple of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, he was, which I think very few people realized, a brilliant political strategist and organizer. Think about it. In this day and age of billion-dollar national political campaigns, Chavez conducted a five-year boycott with no media budget and brought in the support of the, of the Farm Workers Union from a union to civil rights to environmental and consumer supporters where at the end of, this, of it, I think there was a, a cartoon in the New Yorker, a guy standing before St. Peter and St. Peter saying, well, you weren't so good, but you got in here because you boycotted grapes. And Chavez did that by using militant nonviolence, uh, which is what Gandhi called satyagraha, the truth force. And I was very schooled in research. That's what I got, mainly great research skills from Cornell University. And Caesar showed me how to apply those to analyzing the great boycott, and through that I was able to make some small contribution. After that, and being inspired by him, I decided to dedicate uh, my public interest part of my career. I, I have an ability to teach and to research, and then the rest of my time, I work with uh, public interest organizations uh, like the Farm Workers, Business Executives for National Security, uh, which ended, wanted to end the threat of nuclear war, and more recently, the uh, Baby T study, looking at the impact of radiation from the nuclear age on our cancer epidemic. So anthropology is an interdisciplinary study. Uh, it's very well supported in our Department of Global and Sociocultural Studies at FIU. And this is how the two really came together for me. That, that's really great. But, uh, Jerry, you, uh, you had an epiphany, though. You, you told me about a graduate student who, who were in involved with it just before TMI, just because I want to segue into what you're now doing. Currently, folks, uh, Jerry, as well as being a fellow of the World Business Academy for the last, well, since 1990, I believe, uh, it, Jerry is also now, as of this January, he became the, the director of the uh, a special program we have here at the Academy. And I'd like, Jerry, if you would just segue from the TMI experience to tell people what sure. you're now doing and how that fits with and just for listeners, TMI stands for Three Mile Island and the nuclear plant meltdown that happened Correctly. in 1979. Right. So I started teaching at FIU way back in 1972 when the university opened. In 1979, I was teaching a course on technology and society. And an undergraduate student of mine, Mark Ankavaj, who was an ex-Air Force guy, uh, loved to sail out in the bay near Turkey Point Nuclear Power Plant, put in an outline for his class paper that said, the steam generators at Turkey Point, Florida Power and Lights, Turkey Point Nuclear Power Plant, two units, are breaking down. The same scenario that we saw at San Onofre and is, is the present case in point. Uh, Florida Power and Light wants to put the radioactive waste 
next to Biscayne Bay, a National Aquatic Monument, on a concrete building without a floor on six feet of earth and fill, long before the big hurricanes came, and they want to charge the consumers half a billion dollars for their faulty steam generators. Well, I, I never gave too much thought on that. I went out of the country on spring break. I came back. I picked up the newspapers. I came through customs out of the airport, and it was Three Mile Island, 30 miles from a meltdown, 30 minutes from a meltdown. So I thought, you know what? I better take a closer look at Mark Ankovage's uh, paper. Long story short, uh, we created Floridian, Mark and I created Floridians United for Safe Energy using the organizing tools I learned from Cesar Chavez to intervene before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and eventually before the Public Service Commission. What happened was the minute the news of putting the radioactive waste near Biscayne Bay on an earthen floor hit the front page of the Miami Herald, Florida Power and Light revised those plans and sent them nuclear waste up to Barnwell Depository in South Carolina. And we prevailed before the Florida Public Service Commission that since FP&L was suing Westinghouse saying, hey, you sent us bad steam generators, and Westinghouse was countersuing saying, hello, you ran, the, you ran the car wrong, you ran the steam generators wrong. Our argument was certainly the consumers are not at fault here, should not have to bear a half a billion dollar burden for the error of the utility. The error of one of the two of them. But now, let's okay, transition now to tell folks what you're currently the director of. And, the, and, and what we're about to talk about, ladies and gentlemen, is I hope, and, and, and please mark your calendars. This is the 14th of March, 2013. I hope what you're about to hear is the beginning of the end of nuclear power in the state of California, I believe in the United States ultimately, and hopefully in the world. That's what we're after today. Jerry, tell them what you're doing with the Academy today. Well, um, I'm working as the director of the Safe Energy Project. And in this project, we're looking both at Diablo Canyon Nuclear Plant, which is built right on an earthquake fault and near another one. Uh, it was upgraded to withstand a 7.5 earthquake. Fukushima, as we know, was a 9.0. It could not withstand that kind of accident. Uh, and, Jerry, and let me just put, put out one thing about that fault, because most people might not know. It's called the Cambria Fault, ladies and gentlemen. So when we say this is he's the director of the Safe Energy Project, what he's talking about is the Cambria Fault in California, which runs parallel to the coast, precisely at, uh, at, at the nuclear power plant in Diablo Canyon, is identical, identical to the fault line that triggered the nine-point earthquake off of Fukushima. Just want, I want people to know... We're sitting on a ticking time bomb, and that's why we're looking for safe energy. I'm sorry, Jerry, I just want to interject that. No, not at all. And, and the whole point is that um, throughout the nuclear age, through the half century of the nuclear age and since the 1970s when major commercialization of nuclear power has happened, these worst-case accidents, a Three Mile Island, a Chernobyl, uh, Fukushima, these were never supposed to happen until they actually do happen through a combination of things, a faulty valve at Three Mile Island, a failed reactor experiment at Chernobyl, and now everyone knows the combination, the unimaginable and unexpected combination of the tsunami and the failure of the uh, cooling system at Fukushima. Uh, swinging over to Southern California Edison, there it's very similar to Turkey Point in some ways. You have steam generators. And, and let me just clarify, we're talking about 80-foot, tall steam generators. And think of this as a T-immersion rod. You, the steam generator tube is a T-immersion rod. Inside that rod is radioactive water 
at high temperatures under 2,500 pounds per square inch of pressure so it doesn't evaporate. The water on the outside, which is your tea heating up, is the tea that the radioactive water heats up, the water that it heats up to turn the turbine and produce those electrons that turn, run everything in our world today. Those things have corroded, broken, thinned, leaked throughout the history of the nuclear age. Steam generator corrosion is a generic problem. Uh, it's happened in three-quarter of the steam generators. When but, well, okay, Jeremy, Santa, okay, stay, stay, okay, stay for a second. So, so I want people to know a couple things. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, if you're at all interested in this, you're going to hear way more information than you can possibly digest in this phone call today, this interview. What I want you to do is to send a, a message, an email, to info at worldbusiness.org. Tell us you want to be kept on the list. We're going to be starting to send out uh, information on this it, with great regularity as part of Jerry's duties. We're going to be putting the information out to the public. He's now talking about the nuclear power plant called San Onofre, located in Southern California on the San Diego uh, Orange County border. And what he's talking about is that there have been systemic problems historically with every reactor with their particular form of a steam generator, uh, which basically it's a form of how you cool the thing down and, and, and get the power out of it. It's, it, it. it's a heat exchanger. Now, the reason we're going to talk about this in some details, that plant has been closed for 11 months because its steam generators, unlike the normally broken ones, which are deadly, it was so bad, it was spewing radioactive isotopes into the atmosphere, and it was so bad that even Southern California Edison knew, oh, my God, we've got to turn this thing off, and did. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, and the reason this happened, uh, usually it takes, you know, maybe 10 years before a steam generator starts going bad, was this was a brand-new design that Southern California Edison required its manufacturer, Mitsubishi, to make. It told and it lied to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It said, no, this is just a replacement, a like-for-like -like replacement. The brand-new design started failing within one year, leaked radioactivity, um, they had to shut down the plant. They're, the cost now of this replacement uh, is over a billion dollars, more than half the cost of the original plant, and they want to put this onto the ratepayers of California, and they have the audacity to try to restart the plant again, even though they haven't figured out what the root causes are, and our engineers tell us it can fail again. Uh, an analogy actually, is actually, actually, our engineers tell us that probably it's a very high probability it will, but here's the part I want people to remember. So they want to, first of all, they've already charged us, and the World Business Academy is going to get a refund for everybody in California. That's our goal. Number two, they admit that 30% of the tubes are broken. 30% are spewing radioactivity. They want to turn it back on. Here's the punchline, folks. They don't know which 30% it is. So how do they even know it's 30%? To the best of our knowledge, they haven't even inspected all those tubes yet. And when they do, and I don't think they will right away because they know it's going to be worse than they're telling the public, we believe that reactor can never be safely turned on again. It is so damaged, it cannot operate without spewing radioactive isotopes in a radius of 100 miles. So if you live and that radius miles, it covers most of Los Angeles, San Diego, most of Southern California. Yeah, if you live in Orange County, welcome to glow-in-the-dark energy. So there, it's not creating any electricity. It's been turned off for 11 months. They've been charging us for it. We're saying, leave it turned off, give us our money back, and don't you dare ever turn it on again and charge us for it again. And if you've got a problem 
with the people who sold you that stuff. Work it out with them. It's not our problem. You can't operate this plant without spewing radioactive isotopes, which we know for a fact kill. So it's not like anybody doubts that radioactive isotopes kill. And that's where, that's that's sort of what we're doing in San Onofre, isn't it, Jerry? Yeah, very much. I mean, the simple analogy is you buy a new car for $30,000. After a year, the radiator leaks. You can't use it, and the dealer tells you it's going to cost $15,000 to replace the radiator if you want your car to run again. But the real danger to the 8.7 million people living in that radius in Orange County and San Diego is radioactivity. We've known about this since the beginning of the nuclear age and the bomb test years. In fact, the fallout was causing so much damage and increase, and now I'm talking back in the 50s and early 60s, we and the Russians and the Brits were exploding nuclear weapons in the atmosphere as part of the bomb testing program. Uh, a group of scientists measured strontium-90, which is one of nearly 100 isotopes manufactured in a fission reaction, and it can only happen in a bomb or in a nuclear power plant. And uh, Dr. Ernest Sternglass detected that there were similar increases going along with childhood cancer and childhood leukemia. Khrushchev in the Soviet Union was hearing the same thing from Sakharov, the father of the Soviet H-bomb, and basically in the, uh, in the arms test race during the Cold War, we were poisoning our own people. So at the height of the Cold War, Kennedy, Khrushchev get together and they signed the Test Ban Treaty in 1963. It was the evidence of the baby teeth study that showed the increases in the radioactive isotope strontium-90 in children's teeth, which were collected and measured in independent laboratories, that President Kennedy used to convince the Senate to ratify this treaty by 80 to 19 in 1963. This may probably be the most important piece of legislation that Kennedy ever passed. The civil rights legislation didn't get passed until under his successor, Johnson. And when Kennedy signed that test ban treaty, he addressed the nation. And listen to what he said, the, and I quote, the number of children and grandchildren with cancer in their bones, with leukemia in their blood, or with poison in their lungs might seem statistically small to some. But this is not a natural health hazard, and it is not a statistical issue. The loss of even one human life or the malformation of even one baby who may be born long after all of us have gone should be of concern to all of us. Our children and grandchildren are not mere statistics towards which we can be indifferent. The nuclear age, in terms of nuclear power plants, is also on a normal basis, releasing radiation out into the environment. Yeah, before and you go so to that, this Jerry, is an ongoing to, wanna, problem. Yeah, Jerry, just hold it before you uh, before you go to that next sentence. Please, everything please. Jerry just quoted up until that last sentence was from John F. Kennedy shortly before he died, before he was assassinated. In fact, most observers believe the last major act John Kennedy did for America before he was assassinated, was the initially unilaterally suspended above-ground nuclear testing and then ultimately signed uh, an agreement with Khrushchev to, uh, to eliminate it, which was followed, by the way, voluntarily by France and by China and every other nuclear nation. And the reason Kennedy did that, I'm honestly certain, is because he had two young children. He had John John and he had Caroline. And he got a report from Sternglass that showed that children are the primary victims 
of strontium-90 because it bonds to calcium. So the faster your bones are growing, the more strontium-90 you absorb. Strontium-90, by every definition, every scientist, there's no, there's not even one scientist in the world that doesn't say strontium-90 is extraordinarily toxic as a carcinogen for humans. Similarly, they all agree it bonds to calcium, and similarly, they all agree that the faster your bones grow, the more calcium you have, the more strontium-90. That means, ladies and gentlemen, the principal victims of San Onofre, and we would argue also Diablo, but of San Onofre, the principal victims are our children residing in that 100-mile radius. And I just want folks to think about it. That's what John Kennedy said that, that Jerry just quoted. And I think in his memory, given who, what we all think about John Kennedy, we have to stop and say, wait a minute, what was he trying to warn us about? And Jerry, let me, let me try to bring that up to today and, and, and what is actually going on right now. Is there an actual current threat created by uh, either one of these plants in the state that they're in at this very moment, um, or is this a projection of what could happen? Can you clarify that for our listeners? Uh, and if there, and if is, there is a current threat, what would be the action step that uh, they can participate in, perhaps, um, to help uh, remediate this scenario? Right. Well, I'm I'm not the bringer of good news because every American man, woman, and child living within 100 miles of a nuclear power plant is at higher risk of contracting cancer than those who live farther away. Uh, Dr. John Goffman, the father of plutonium, uh, working at Livermore Lab, concluded that there was going to be thousands of extra deaths through the operation of nuclear power plants. Everyone knows that nuclear power plants run and, and use radioactivity. What they don't realize is that the government allows them to release what are called safe amounts of radiation, and they couldn't operate without that on a regular basis. There was a major study that showed that women who, in, the, in 1,300 of the 3,000 U.S. counties that live within 100 miles of a reactor were significantly at a higher risk of dying of breast cancer than those women who lived in other states. So this is an ongoing problem throughout the nuclear age. The baby teeth study, which collects children's teeth and documents the level of strontium-90, showed hey, the strontium-90 declined after 1963 when all of the na major nations stopped above-ground bomb testing, and it should be back to non-detectable at this point. But you know what? After the 1970s and the 80s and 90s, it starts going up in the baby teeth higher and higher. Strontium-90 is a marker for the other radioactive isotopes that are released in this kind of uh, atomic reaction for plutonium, for radioactive iodine, for cesium-137, which showed up in great amounts around Fukushima. So this is an ongoing problem. Steam generation decay and leaks are an additional radiological burden that are placed on the populations where these leaks take place. So it's an ongoing problem of the nuclear age, and everyone living near nuclear power plants is at some risk. And, and what do we do about that? And what can we do? And I'll actually, well, I'll, I'll both well, you know what, you know what Howard, I got, I, let me suggest this. I think that um, what I'd like to do is invite Jerry to come back in a few months. Uh, first of all, he's in the middle of a pitched battle right now on behalf of the Academy, leading a team of folks 
who are trying to keep San Onofre closed and get that refund I talked about. We've been filing petitions in that case as the World Business Academy. Uh, we've partnered up with some petitions uh, with, with the, the Friends of the Earth. They're one of our partners in that suit. And um, TURN, the Towards Utility Rate Normalization, which is the number one watchdog group of PUC actions in California. So we've got a full plate. Jury's uh, took time from that incredibly jammed schedule. In fact, I think we're, we're due. Aren't we due to put more briefs in by the 27th of March, Jerry? Uh, right at the end of this month. The last yeah. thing I'd like to say is we can do what Germany did. Uh, Chancellor Merkel and the German government have said they're phasing out all of their nuclear power plants by uh, 2022. And if, if Germany, the fourth largest economy in the world, can do it, um, the United States can figure it out as well. And, and, I, and, in, and, in, and then moving on to the next part of the show, uh, Howard, and I just want to quote one thing that Jerry's aware of. We have a, what's called an independent system operator in California which is, is, is a California agency put in charge of monitoring how much power we need and whether we have it where we need it. And it, it was something that was created after the brownouts uh, that occurred because of the Enron manipulation. Well, uh, in just a couple of weeks ago, no, it goes to February, they concluded, they concluded that even if we turned, Senate Offer was already offline, even if we turned Diablo offline, we would have no shortage of electricity. I want to underscore that. So keeping these plants going has no public purpose except to enrich a few companies, like Southern California Edison, at the death of young children and lactating women. Now, if you're going to kill women and children, what kind of society are you? And I hope everybody hearing this show will send me a note, info at worldbusiness.org, and tell us you want to be kept apprised, because we're hoping that all of you will keep learning more and more. Jerry, we're going to have you back on the show in a few months to get an update. And unfortunately, we're going to have to go now to the lightning round, but I really appreciate your coming on. you have one last thought you want to share with us? Uh, thank you for having me on the show, and I look forward to uh, returning and giving you an update on our safe energy project uh, in California. Thanks, Jerry. Much Jerry, appreciated. much appreciated. And again, thank you very much. Um, we'd love hearing from you, and uh, look forward to hearing from you again when you come back in a few months. With that, Ronaldo, it is time for us to move on to our lightning round. We have about uh, 15 minutes left in the show today. And again, the lightning round is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And again, today we're going to mention a little bit about what's been going on with gold in particular and also the S&P 500. Ronaldo. Well, first of all, Howard, um, part of what we want to do in the show, folks, is we try to connect the dots for you. What's going on in business and society? at the broadest macro level, so you can make thoughtful, informed decisions as public citizens. The other thing we want to do in this show, which we've been doing for the last three years, is we want you to make more money because you listen to the show. We want your retirement accounts to grow faster. We want your college funds to grow faster. We want your savings to grow faster. So what we do is we give constant advice every single month about how to maximize your well-being financially. I'm going to take two because Howard's my referee. He, he, he keeps score for me. We gave... Um, I started buying. Uh, I started uh, selling my gold position uh, in, uh, I guess, in, uh, in October uh, of last year. And I told people in the show in October, November, I said, uh, "The I think that gold has more risk of a downside than it does of going sideways any longer." And I certainly don't see the upside breakout happening. So I urge people for the first time in five and a half years to sell their gold. At that time, what was the price of gold, Howard? In October, gold peaked. I don't know the exact date at the moment, uh, but it peaked at $1,791. And today, just as an example, at the moment, it's trading at uh, $1,586. So it's about an 11.5% decline 
in those three, four months, four, uh, more than that, five, five so months. If, if you sold your gold like I did, you made 11.5% on your money in four and a half months. Folks, that happens all the time on the show, as regular listeners know who go back two and three years. I'm going to give you another one. We told people that we could not recommend buying bonds or stocks in the United States for the longest time, and I only changed that recommendation, I believe, last November. So on the November show, I said, I believe it's time to buy the stock market again. You can, it's safe to go into equities, and I'm, I personally started buying what's called the S&P 500. I started buying the broad market. When I did that, according to Howard's numbers, the S&P was at 140, uh, 1430, 1430. Today, less than three months later, a little over three months later, it's at 100, uh, 1,564. So I've already made 9% on my Actually, money. Actually, it's 160, uh, I should say, 1560 at the moment. Is 1560, the number. Okay. Yeah. So, so I made 9% profit by taking my own advice late November. Now, why am I saying that to you today? Because we're going to continue to keep you apprised. One of the things people have asked us is, gee, are you sure you were right about gold? Because it's gone down. Is it going to go down some more? The answer is, better chance of it going down than of it going up. Worst case, it'll go sideways, and you don't make money when gold goes sideways. So I continue to have my position be, I'm not, a, I'm not in favor of buying gold. And if you've got it, you still have time to sell it. Uh, the second thing I want to say with regard to the general stock market, the S&P 500, many people, Howard asked me on the way in today, he said, Ronaldo, do you think the market's overvalued? We had a little conversation in the hall about it before we went on air. And I believe that if the president gets his act together and stops the second bite of the sequester in 2014 from happening, the market's probably exactly where it should be. Not because the sequester that they did, the $85 billion, was a good thing. It was a very bad thing, as you've heard me say. However, it's done. The effects of it have already baked into my calculation. And I believe the market is about where it should be when you assume that we're going to have growth in this country of about 1.5% GDP growth, which will be trending up towards 2 to 3% if we quit playing games. Now, let me give you one caveat. This is March. At the end of this month, the silliness in Washington could start again with a passion, because we need to get a budget passed. And if the Republicans attempt to close down the government by refusing to pass a rational budget that reflects the will of the people of this nation based on the last election's results, i.e., we don't want to give tax breaks to rich people, we do want to keep the economy growing, we want to put an emphasis on jobs, we're not going to repeal Obamacare, if you take all those things which we've already debated endlessly and had a whole election over, if the Republicans block that, and the president doesn't have the willingness to stand up and be the chief executive officer, then you could see the market take a dip. However, I'm going to hope that they aren't that stupid on the Republican side, and that the president has more strength and in, 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 in wisdom than he's shown in the last month and a half. If that's true, then I feel very good the market's in exactly the right place. Please turn in next month because if I have to change that, in fact, what I'll do, Howard, if I see that I've got to change the predictions the market's safe to be invested in, I will send out a tweet as soon as I know it. But please very, listen that's that's next very month. Very good idea. Because yeah. next month I will definitely be covering it to see where we are because we'll be past this terrible next silly game of politics. 
Well, we had given, a, one other given, question that given came the up. behavior of, of the two parties since the election. I find it difficult to see any indication that, other than perhaps maybe the Republicans playing hardball and hoping for some agreement at the very last second, I find it very difficult to imagine there even being a compromise or even a continuing resolution to push it down the road. Um, I think they're out uh, to play the hardest of hardball they can and take advantage of their ability to, to not pass a budget and to try to force Obama to collapse and cave. Uh, yeah, I'm not I, very I, optimistic about this. Yeah, well, I'm 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 not either because of how silly it's gotten and how little uh, presidential leadership the president is currently showing. And by the way, his numbers are dropping as they well should because of his performance. In other words, people are are saying in the polls now, we don't trust you as much, Mr. President, because you're not getting the results. And he's not. And blaming the Republicans is not a good enough answer. As I said earlier in the show, you're the CEO. You stand by your results, and you've got uh, he's got hundreds of tools at his disposal to turn this thing around, including a direct the direct confrontation of each congressperson who wants to do something silly, like a Boehner or a Paul Ryan or an Eric Cantor, take them on in their own congressional districts, Mr. President, one district at a time. Your your favorite guy, Lincoln, did the same thing, and without it, we'd still have slaves in America. Come on. That's what it takes if you want to move the country forward. Now, I think that the other question I know we got um, ahead of time was about currency. Uh, let me just say quickly about currency. I've been asked whether or not the American dollar is due for a, a drop. Uh, the answer is no, not at this time. Stay tuned for next month again because this big March end decision is going to be reached by the American government. And I think one of the things people have to bear in mind when they look at the American dollar is the American dollar compared to what? And the only other currency in the world that is a significant comparison point um, is the euro. Uh, followed by the pound and the yen, somewhat further down the line there. But in terms of overall global significance, it's really the euro as a measuring point. And just as a basis reminder, before the fiscal crisis in 2008, the value of the euro had gone up to a dollar sixty. Uh, right now, it's at a dollar twenty-eight, dollar uh, twenty-nine. Uh, so it's a big difference from that that territory. Most of the time, it's been hovering around 130, 135, so we're a little bit below that level right now. But Europe also has its battles and difficulties right now over the same notions of austerity versus stimulus. And they're going back and forth as to how to resolve their issues, which gave us rise to that term muddling through, um, which seems to be their philosophy. What happens here with the dollar will very much depend upon next month's behavior or the end of this month's behavior well, about the budget. Well, and, and here's what we can do. We, there's a few things we can look at with, with some confidence. First of all, with regard to Europe, one of the reasons Europe is doing better today is not because they've changed anything. In fact, you could say that what happened with the Italian elections made it worse. Why it's doing better in Europe is because the economic strength of America is slowly like a giant train engine pulling the global economy along with China uh, and, and along with Singapore and Southeast Asia uh, and India. Uh, they, 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 they were pulling the economy of the world upwards, uh, kicking and screaming, even though the Europeans are doing everything they can to shoot their foot off. And the Americans are shooting their foot off because we should be growing at 3% GDP right now instead of one and a half. However, that's Ronaldo, I just want to interject for a second. This kind of brings me to a simple concept that I call sort of uh, organic or, or uh, individual capitalism. That and it goes back to 2008. You can see this very clearly. When markets collapsed, the economy shrank, 
every individual that I know who was involved in business, every small business that I knew, and I used to head economic development in this county, um, every single one of them was trying harder to improve their particular business, their individual assets. And that step up in energy and activity was seen in network groups, business activity, um, all the, the intangible measures that exist out there of business activity. And that inherent capitalism is what's pushing the economy forward. Everyone is trying to do better for themselves, for their company, or their corporation. That alone is part of what's moving us forward, not the gamesmanship that we're seeing in Congress. And that's yeah, a factor that should never be totally ignored in any examination of economics yeah, and is often why, overlooked. But, but that's why I'm saying it, it, the economy would be so much stronger if, they would, if the Republicans would keep, quit shooting it in the foot. And that's the problem. It, it, it should be running at 3% or more. It should have been doing it last year, actually. But now it should be doing it because it, all the, everything is spring-loaded. Remember we called correctly uh, last March, April. We said what would happen in the housing industry, and we were correct. The housing industry is pushing hard, and it will continue. You know you had the best year, the best increase in housing prices in six years, not just four years, six years, just this last month? So we've got we've got tremendous amount of push coming because more and more people are being hired to build more and more houses. There's, we're at an all-time low of new housing stock. We're we're approaching the lowest we're at the lowest level in four years for resale housing. So so there's a lot of strength in the economy. And, and what Howard's saying is every butcher and baker and candlestick maker is learning how to do what they do better and be leaner and more efficient. Now that all works to a point, but you can't keep shooting yourself in the foot without bleeding to death. And that's what's been going on with Republicans. But I want to come back to this currency question before we run out because I know we're about the end of the hour. So the Japanese currency, the yen, you're going to hear the yen has begun dropping, and it will continue to drop, and it should drop. That's intentional. The, the government of Japan, after 20-some years of deflation, has decided it's got to get the value of Japanese currency down, and it's going to do it. The head of the uh, Bank of Japan just retired forcibly. The new guy has made no, no bones about it. He's going to basically deflate the currency, and they're going to do that, and they should do that. The Chinese are very upset. They're saying, well, that makes us less competitive. Eh, what it's really doing is it's just pushing the Chinese to revalue up a little faster. They've been doing it for a year and a half already anyway. The U.S. dollar will be unaffected, meaning it will look stronger against the yen, but it won't be stronger in an absolute sense. Against the euro, it will remain roughly where it is. And against the Canadian dollar, it will remain roughly where it is. What we will see soon is the decision on the Keystone Pipeline, which will affect, in a small way, I believe, the ratio of the dollar to the Canadian dollar, but will have no other effect anywhere else that I can tell on the planet. So net, 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 the dollar in the United States is going to continue going sideways in value. It is not going to go up. It's not going to go down. And those who are afraid of you know, breakaway or runaway inflation, don't worry about it. It ain't about to happen. Those who believe that we're going to have an explosive economic growth that will require the Fed to react, that's not going to happen because we keep doing silly things in Washington. So I just want to end with this comment. Those who you hear say in the financial community, and I've heard most people say this, the sequester is a good thing because it's reducing the deficit. Remember what I said on this program. They are totally wrong. I'm not saying they may be wrong. I'm saying they are unequivocally totally wrong. This sequester, which was designed as a stupid event, so bad and so dumb that no one would let it happen, that now we are living with because the Republicans forced it. This sequester is a very bad thing for the deficit. It will increase the deficit, not reduce it. 
And by the way, and I want to end with a comment Paul Krugman made at least a year ago, which I couldn't agree more with, this economy doesn't have a deficit problem. You've heard me say it over and over and over again on the show. Please, folks, send me questions to force me to explain why that's true. I'd love to in greater detail. There's no deficit problem. We have a jobs problem. We need to keep creating jobs. And we have an income distribution problem. We need to keep reducing this astronomical gap between the very, very wealthy and the top 2% and everybody else in America. If those are our two problems. The deficit, we don't have a thing to worry about for at least 10 years. So let's get past all this silliness. Let's focus on what matters, jobs, growing the economy, and reducing the income disequilibrium between various classes in society, and start the really rigorous build business of investing in our infrastructure. Why do we build more bridges and dams in Afghanistan, uh, bridges in Afghanistan than we do in America? Why are we willing to let 53% of all the bridges we drive on be unsafe? Why are we willing to have our sewer lines broken? Why are we willing to let sinkholes happen in Florida that swallow up houses with guys sleeping in them? Why are we willing to allow uh, explosions of natural gas pipelines because of improper maintenance? And on and on and on. We must rebuild the infrastructure of America. And as we do, we will all get wealthier doing it. Our kids will get smarter. We'll start stop dropping in international statistics as one of the poorest educated countries now, one of the one of the countries with the worst medical system in of the top 30, will start being a country you'd be all proud of again. And wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be great to be a world leader again instead of the basically right now the butt of a lot of jokes around the world because we are so incapable of having a civil conversation between the right-wing crazy and everybody else who wants to move the country forward? Renaud, let me just remind our, our listeners that uh, our next show is going to be in April, on the 11th, at 11 a.m., it's the second Thursday of the month. If you download us and want to find us online, again, go to www.worldbusiness.org and look for the Blog Talk Radio link along with Ronaldo's picture. With that, Ronaldo, we're about to close our show. Any two last seconds? Second yeah, I've got two, requ- two requests, one I've already made. Please send us a note, info at worldbusiness.org. Tell us you want to be kept apprised of this incredible thing we're trying to do to end this needless death initially in California, hopefully in the world, but help us by staying informed of the nuclear issues. Info at worldbusiness.org. Just tell us you want to be kept apprised of the nuclear issue. We'll keep you on the mailing list. Number two, please, please tell your friends. If you heard something on this show today, anything, that you thought would make you happier, healthier, wealthier, or just a better American citizen or a better world citizen, please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, help us grow this audience, help us find more people, who want to think this way, who want to be part of an intelligent conversation of how we can move forward together as a human society that's really ready to consciously evolve. Thanks, one and all. With that, Ronaldo, I'd like to thank our listeners and, and Dr. Jerry V. Brown. And um, with that, we're going to sign off for the day. And thanks again for being our guests. Bye-bye now.